Folks, we've been looking at the Roman uh, Catholic faith to one degree or another. And the reason that I chose to do that was because um, I, I truly want to see us reach out to them. I do see lots of baptisms. When I baptisms, when I had seven baptisms a few weeks ago, uh, I had six ex-Roman Catholics that had come to faith. And, and that sort of sparked something in my mind. You know, we all need to hear about it. Because I've heard some other people approach Roman Catholics just the wrong way. When I was in business, I, I, I was hearing one of these interior designers I was working with talk about this person who beat up on them in an airplane. Uh, they wouldn't let him out of the road. They just kept giving them and hitting him with the gospel. And that's not kind. That's not being loving and, and gracious. And so I, I just want us to understand that it's important. Now, reaching Roman Catholics with the, with the true gospel, we want them to hear the true gospel Do you know what, folks? You have to realize they don't even know the difference. They have no clue. Most of the time, they don't even know what they believe. They just do this rote action of going to Mass and, you know, doing this and uh, going to confession on occasion. That's about all they did. But today I want to look at the sacraments. We didn't get to finish up on it. I wish I had finished up on it last time, but we uh, got uh, caught, short, caught short of time. The system, the sacraments, uh, we had gone through a baptism, what they did to baptism and making it a child baptism. And the reason that they did that was to incorporate more and more people into the system. That's basically why they, they made it into child baptism. They didn't uh, they didn't see anything biblically to do that. Um, then we looked at penance where they confess their sins. They come before a priest and only a priest to confess their sins. We see nothing of the sort in the scriptures. If I, can, if I sin against you, I go to you directly and seek forgiveness from you, and I also go to God uh, and seek forgiveness. I have some people don't mind going to God and seeking forgiveness, but they hate having to go to the person. And I said, that's the true um, measure of a person who is really repentant. They're willing to hear that person um, maybe tell them, you know, hey, you were wrong here, wrong here, you're wrong there. Well, we got up to the the Eucharist, and we talked about that for quite a bit. And I didn't get to tell you this one story. It's about this priest. And this priest got all dressed up to do Mass. You know, he gets all his vestments on, and if you've ever been an altar boy like I have, it is quite an occasion. They go into this drawer, they get this out, and I go, and they put the thing on their arm, and they do this, and they do that, and all of this kind of stuff. And they have to kiss everything before they put it on. I already know that it's clean, honey. I don't have to kiss anything, you know, because if you did it, it's clean. But that's what they would do. And, And so he goes out there, and he starts to preach, as they call it, on Hebrews chapter 10. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10? And in Hebrews chapter 10, which I I just love that Hebrews chapter 10 is there because if you want to be kind and you want to be loving to a Roman Catholic, this is exactly where you want to go. And so he started reading, okay? And he read this in uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. He stopped and thought about it for a little bit, but he kept reading. 
10.12 says this, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, it tells us that Jesus, what he did on the cross, took care of sins for all time. It doesn't mean that you have to keep doing this mass, which stood in for that. He was offering the body of Christ once for all. And then in in 1014, it says, For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And and all of this is building up in his mind and in his heart as he's reading this. And then he gets down to verse 18. And now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. He's in the pulpit, and he starts to go, we don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to do this anymore. He kept doing it until the priest from the rectory came out and took him off. Because he was trying to point out to the people, we don't have to do this anymore. That's exactly what Roman Catholicism does in the Mass, is that they crucify Jesus Christ Every single Mass. Today, Sunday, I can't imagine how many there are. I mean, I could guess. I know my church had about seven Masses in on Sunday. Uh, And so they would would be crucifying him, putting him to death, and all of that kind of stuff. Every single time he came to be enlightened that, you know what? We don't have to do this anymore. The, The symbolic... Reckoning or recognizing of what Christ did is what we do. We recognize that he finished it all. It's done. And we have to recognize that the only way to heaven is to recognize that it's done. Well, this priest obviously came to faith in Christ. But I read this in a book about 50 priests who had come to Christ. My son-in-law gave me the book, and, and so I, I read it, and, and uh, the, this one here just stood out to me uh, of being one of those that we need to hear. And, and uh, Romans Catholics need to hear that. Now, you could bring this up, and sell, the Roman Catholics going to go, I don't know, I don't know. But bring them to the Scripture. And you know what? You can even bring them to the Roman Catholic Scripture, the Douay version, uh, and say, look what it says here. That's what the Bible says. Now, I did get into a debate with a Roman Catholic priest once, okay? And we got going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And and he says, but the tradition says this. I said, but God says this. And he'd go back to the tradition says this. And I said, but God says this. And he then said, looks like you're not listening to me. The, The tradition doesn't mean anything. It is what God says. And so that's something that I want to bring to your mind. And uh, he, he was converted right there as he's reading the scriptures. Isn't that what the Bible's supposed to do? Is to convert those who are in sin. The gospel promises that the work of Christ was completed on the cross. It was, it was done. Yet the Roman Catholic Mass continues the sacrifice daily. Those who believe in in the Mass are never offered a complete assurance of peace in heaven. They never have that assurance, ever. And and that's the sad thing. These people go throughout their life hoping to get into purgatory. If there was such a thing, you wouldn't want to be in purgatory. 
But that's what they hope to get into because then somehow somebody's going to remember them and, and they're going to be helped out in the future somehow. It, it, it's, a, it's a system that encapsulates the whole heart. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't finalize whether you're a believer or not a believer. Uh, now, I, I say that takes place during the Mass. I was talking to my sister over the Christmas holidays and, and I'm trying to give her the gospel. We're talking nicely to one another. And then she says, but your mass. And so what mass? We, we don't do mass. We don't do what you do. It's not the same thing. She, didn't want to, she did not want to talk anymore. As soon as she realizes there's something different, she did not want to investigate. That's the sadness of the whole thing. Some people do. I'm glad that I did when that woman was witnessing to me in 1982 in Montreal, Canada, that I wanted to investigate, I wanted to read. It sent me to my hotel room looking at the Bible. And by reading the Bible, I'm going, oh, Jesus did this for me? I mean, that's what any of us would say. Jesus did this for me? I don't deserve this. The best that a Roman Catholic priest offers is purgatory. And uh, that is a complete deception. And again, that keeps the Roman Catholic in bondage. Now the next one is confession. Or, I'm sorry, confirmation. Confirmation. Uh, I remember as I think it was about 12 years old. By the way, I I wasn't a nice boy, okay? I, I was the guy in the class who picked on the girls, okay? I pulled their hair, I shot rubber bands at them, I did all kinds of things. I mean, it it was, you know, that was just me. That's what I did, you know. Uh, That's who I was. But this confirmation, they said they announced this confirmation uh, that it's going to come and it's going to help you become more spiritual. Uh, It's going to help you to become um, strengthened in your belief. And and I heard it and I said, you know, I want to go. I need something to help me because my parents aren't. They're just beating me to death. And um, so the sacrament, according to Rome, bestows the Holy Spirit upon you. Now, I, 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 now that I'm a, a believer, I'm going, so at baptism they didn't have the Holy Spirit? So all of those who died before they received the Holy Spirit then went to hell. Think about the logic of this. That's what they're saying. There is believed to be an increasing of sanctifying grace and, and, and the gifts of the Spirit. Now, at that age, when you're that young, you're starting to believe some of these things. You really are, because that's what you're being told over and over and over again. And, and I, ha- I did have some friends who actually believed all this stuff, and they did all of the actions that a Roman Catholic would do. We go past the church, and they'd be doing this. I'm going, why are you doing that? And, and they'd say, it's because they wanted to get a blessing. I'm going, oh, you've got to be kidding me. But that's what they would do. Some Roman Catholics see this sacrament as a sacrament marking the threshold between become, going from childhood to adulthood. Um, and if you, knew 12, if you know 12-year-olds, you would not consider them an adult. I'm sorry if there are 12-year-olds in here. It's unusual that you would consider them an adult. It has the name of the sacrament of maturity given to it. That's what, that's what they say about it. The child now accepts adult responsibilities. Well, I'd like to see that with my 12-year-olds. Well, they're 
a little bit older than that now, but they become also a full member of the church. So that's what they do. They put them into the church. It's also called the sacrament of initiation. It's sort of the initiatory rites that a, a person goes through to become part of the church. There's a reason that they did this. There's a specific reason why they did this. The reason is this. When the church was first expanding out into the Holy Roman Empire, they were going out there to where all the barbarians were. And they, you know, they, they would make them Christians. If you want to be Christians, that's, they would make them Roman Catholics. And so they didn't have a priest out there. So the bishop would go out riding around on his horse or whatever he did, maybe his cart, I don't know. And he'd get to the city and then he would do all the confirmations just to help them feel better. But they didn't have a priest there, so this uh, bishop would do that kind of thing. Uh, This confirmation is to initiate them to be strong in the faith and to secure them into what they think is um, good religious actions. In a a work that was written by two Christian, or I'm sorry, two Catholic theologians who are professors at the Catholic Institute of Paris, they indicate that confirmation did not, okay, begin until well after the Roman peace had begun. So way after, so you're looking at, you know, 500, 600, 800, 900 AD, this did not start in the beginning. Somewhere after declaring the Holy Roman Empire, as a Holy Roman Empire, confirmation started. Uh, They said it developed uh, uh, because the outlying areas of the kingdom uh, were without uh, major cities and they needed a bishop to go out there. So that's, that's what happened to that. One last thing, however, it was not until the Council of Trent, listen to this, in the 1500s, that a defined position was taken by the Roman Catholic Church to completely define it. What happened at the, Roman, at the Council of Trent? I don't know if I've mentioned this last week or the last two times that I've taught. But the Council of Trent was an answer to something. What was it an answer to? The Reformation, John Calvin. It was an, and it was an answer to um, uh, all that was going on in seeing people truly come to Christ. Martin Luther and all of those various um, reformers were beginning to happen, and so that's what was, was going on. So it was an answer to that. Up to this time, mostly these practices were neglected by the church up to 1500s. And that's 1,500 years after Christ is gone, folks. It's not, it's not just a little bit. It was never even used until then. Here's another sacrament, matrimony. Did you know that that's a sacrament? Yeah. It's a special grace. It's bestowed upon those getting married that will allow them to stay in the state of marriage. Do you know Roman Catholics cannot divorce? Yeah. Now, I need to tell you a story. I had a customer of mine, friend. Um, she was a single gal. Donna and I know her. We used to go to lunch with her at dinner, and she was over in Phoenix in Arizona. And um, she told me one day that she was getting married, but she had to wait. And I said, why do you have to wait? She said, well, the man I'm marrying is, is a Roman Catholic, because I only can ro- marry a Roman Catholic, because she is a Roman Catholic. And... Uh, I have to wait until he gets his annulment. His annulment? 
So he has children, 17 and 21. And so he annuls his marriage with his wife, now making them children that didn't have a mother and a father. It just, it's so ridiculous that they would do things like that. But she had to wait for that. And you know what? She told me how much it cost. Now, I don't remember the exact figure, but it was a big figure. It was a lot of money for him to do that. That's how the church keeps making money. So, in the Roman Catholic system of sacraments, marriage did not officially become a sacrament until 1536. Council of Trent is what recognized it as a, um, uh, as, as a sacrament. It was then insisted that the couple had to get married before the priest. You could not get married somewhere else and it be considered a marriage. You had to get married before a priest. Um, folks, I, just to tell you this little story, I once married this uh, seminary student and his wife. Married them, they went off, I think they went to Hawaii or whatever, and, and they, they came back and they said, oh, but we didn't have you sign the marriage certificate. I said, guys, you weren't married. I, I could see there they went white completely. They were scared. I said, I, I, I'm sorry, no, no, I can see I'm pulling one on you here. It doesn't matter whether I sign that or not, you're married. We did that ceremony over here in the chapel, you're married. Uh, how about holy orders? That's the next one. By the way, you can see, as a Roman Catholic, it's almost impossible to get all the sacraments because you can't get married and become a priest. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do both. So a holy order is, a, again, this is a, a special grace, a special power that they received. Listen to this. It wasn't until 1947... Who was around here? <laughs> Dave, yeah. I, I don't want to pick on anyone else. I was not, so don't pick on me. Okay. 1947, that Pope Pius XII declared that the act of ordination of a priest was a sacrament. H- how can you wait for 1,900 years? It should have been out in the beginning. This is what you're going to do in the beginning. I'm going to quote from a Roman Catholic book of sacraments. The Seven Sacraments is actually the name of the book. It's uh, written by Anselm Grun, and he said this, quote, Essentially, the priest is a mediator between God and human beings. He stands between them and transmits God's closeness, love, healing power to humans. Sounds really good. All religions recognize the function of a priest as a mediator between God and humans. He mediates between them by bringing their offerings before God or by receiving their concerns and passing them on to God in a petitionary prayer. The Romans expressed this uh, mediatory function of the priest in the symbolic figure of the pontiflex, which is the builder of a bridge. Okay, still going on. They called the high priest the pontifex maximus or the greatest builder. Folks, Do we know our Bibles? Open up the first Timothy. First Timothy chapter two. Because you see, folks, if somebody says something to me that is supposed to be doctrine, I need to find it in the scriptures. If I can't find it here, I don't have to believe it. 
But in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, it says this, For there is one God and one mediator. There's no other mediator. One God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our mediator. He's the one that we go to. We don't have to go to someone else. You don't have to go to a priest. When you go to a pastor and you speak to him, you're trying to get counsel about what the Word of God has to say, but he's not mediating your sins for you. He's not going to the Lord for you in, in, in the sense of trying to get rid of your sins. No, he may go to the Lord for you in the sense of you being faithful to what he's told you to do. I can't tell you, how I've, everybody I've ever met with, I've prayed for them that way. You know, Even when I have a few minutes, I pray for them that way, and sometimes I even send them a text letting them know, I'm praying for you. Because that's what they need to know. Yeah, it's about them going to God. They must go to God and say, I agree with you, Lord. I am a sinner. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. Now I need to take care of it. How do you take care of it? You go to the other person. You do whatever you have to. And there's a whole bunch of things we can talk about there. Do you see how the Roman Catholic Church kept doing these kinds of things and and making it later and later and later? The Pope today is called the Pontiff. And he is the greatest mediator. He is supposed to be bringing the sins of the people to God. Well, when we get to the saints, you're going to see some other things like that. Number seven, the anointing of the sick. When I was growing up, it used to be called extreme unction. When I was a little kid, I couldn't say the word. Um, They would call it the last rites. I was there in, in my, my aunt's living room when the priest gave my grandmother last rites. And I, I didn't understand what was going on. I was still a little, a little guy. But I was there, and, that, and that's what they do. They would come and they would give them the last rites, supposedly to have them get healed, though. But my grandmother was dying of cancer, so she wasn't going to get healed. The Council of Trent declared that Mark 6.13, listen to let's look at Mark 6.13, Mark 6.13, Jesus gave them permission in coming out. The unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea about 2,000... I'm sorry, that's five. Nobody stopped me. Nobody stopped me. Pastor, what are you doing? And they were casting out many demons. This is 6.13. And we're anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And so they use that as the basis of their sacrament. Obviously, this is in conjunction with James chapter 5, where you bring oil to put on someone's head and all of those kinds of things. And believe me, I've had, we've had so many debates in our staff over the years talking about that. What exactly does that mean? And you know, we have... Uh, two people that are associated with Grace Church who have two different opinions on it, and it's in writing and books. So those are opinions, okay? Those are opinions. And friends, when we look at 613, it says here that they were casting out, and who were they that were casting them out? 
Those were the followers of Christ. Those were not priests. Those were not priests. They were casting them out. Now, in a letter from Innocent I, this is a pope, in 416 AD, it says that the anointing of oil for the sick could be carried out by any believer. I'm going to give you my opinion on it, okay? What is the anointing of the oil? It's to make them look better. When you look better, you feel better. It doesn't necessarily give the Holy Spirit to that person to get better. I've gone to the hospital many times to pray for people. I've prayed for people that are dying. I've prayed for people that were sick. I've never brought oil or anything like that. I don't think they ever expected me to do that. But I go there to pray for them and to let them know that we are doing that. I've seen people come out of the hospital when they were very sick. I've seen others. Uh-uh. I have a very dear friend who's in the hospital today, and I'm going to be going to see him later on. And uh, he's going to get out of the hospital. You know why I know he's going to get out of the hospital? Because he's gone out of the hospital the last 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> but he gets go, and, and he comes back out, and he goes, and he comes back out. The guy's a fighter. Absolute fighter. So does that do that? Listen to this quote. The early church contrasted the sacrament of consecrated oil with superstitious and heathen practices. That's where they got it from. The heathens were doing it in their mystical um, uh, services. And then it keeps going on, the, the quote does, to ensure that Christians no longer frequented soothsayers and magicians. They didn't want them going to the soothsayers and magicians. They didn't want them to go to the lady who's going to read the palm down at the corner there. You know, stay with us. We read the palm much better than they do. That kind of thing. The church took its ministry of healing seriously and consecrated the oil. Folks, I, I got to tell you, and this is something that, that, that bugs me, you can't make oil holy. It's still oil. You can't make water holy. It's still water. And you professing whatever or pronouncing whatever on it doesn't make it holy. But that's what the Catholic Church people believe. So we see how the various sacraments, they are used. They're not biblical in nature. They grow out of tradition. And in most of the time, those traditions are because other heathen religions were using them and they wanted to capture the heart of those people, so they began to incorporate them. So when looking at the various Catholic Church publications, I came to the clearest explanation of how this could happen. Quote, that Christ instituted the sacraments, that each of them is rightly considered an act of Christ, corresponding to a particular gift of grace, which Christ expressly willed while leaving it to the church to specify the specific forms of human action which would allow it. That's a quote from the Roman Catholic Church. Beloved, the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church weren't really even initiated until 1215. So if it was something that began in the beginning, it doesn't have any sense of it. It doesn't even smell like it. The scriptures tell all those who read them that God desires his people to worship him how? 
in spirit and in truth. What, what does that mean by spirit? It means that you are in agreement with what God says. You hear what God says and you do what God says. When you're out of that, guess what? You're not in spirit or in truth. So if you're trying to be reconciled to God, you need to be coming before God. You need to be seeking a peace with Him, seeking forgiveness from Him. And then it it lines up. Then it begins to happen. Before that, it's not going to happen. And you're still going to have a miserable life. Still going to have a miserable life. Since truth resides in the Holy Bible, it is incumbent, listen to this, incumbent upon you as a Protestant to make sure that you are using the Scriptures rightfully divided, 2 Timothy 2.15. Make sure you know the Scriptures before you go to witness to somebody that you can use those Scriptures. Well, let's look at what God says because they're going to say, well, this is what the tradition says. Let's look what God says. You know, just like I did with that uh, priest, by the way, that priest married Donna and I. And yes, that is still a marriage. (laughs) Monsignor Jeffers, oh my. You will not find any of the seven sacraments and the grace that supposedly it dispenses anywhere in the scriptures. Nowhere. It's not there. Not there. Uh, This Anselm Gruen, who I mentioned before, had this other quote. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of it because I do want to get on to the saints and Mary. It says this, sacrifice also means total devotion. When the Bible says that Jesus' death in sacrifice, it doesn't mean that Jesus fulfilled his love by dying. The Bible certainly doesn't say that God demanded the sacrifice on the cross. Did you hear that? That God demanded the sacrifice on the cross. That's in Roman Catholic writing. Are you serious? You mean my good works would help me? That's totally, absolutely wrong. But that's what this is saying. Jesus did not come on earth to die for us, but to tell us the good news that God, who loves us, is so close to us. Of course, when he realized the conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees could result in a violent death, he did not flee but maintain his love for his friends to point out uh, to the point of death. Jesus did not think of his brutal death as failure, but as devotion to his friends. Folks, Let's look at the scriptures, Acts chapter 2. Total contradiction to the Bible. Total contradiction. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this man, speaking of Jesus, this man delivered over by the, what? Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nail to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. It's a predetermined plan. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made that plan before the creation. I, I, how the Roman Catholic Church misses that, and they do, because they want to say, no, he really didn't mean to do that, he meant to do this. 
Acts 3.18. Acts 3.18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. It's telling us he fulfilled all that was predicted. We can go back to Isaiah 53. By the way, I used Isaiah 53 with my two Jewish bosses once to witness to them. Went through it, you know, line by line. I was sitting in a parking lot with them for about an hour, and I had some time. And, uh, and they're both sitting there. And my God, I got a captive audience. It was pouring rain outside. And they listened to it, and they, and they said, so what are you going to do when you finish the seminary? I'm going to become a pastor. It was within three weeks they got another salesman to join me in my territory. <laughs> and I told them what they were doing was wrong, but eh, no, it actually turned out to be very right. First Peter one twenty one one twenty, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Christ came, folks, specifically. Specifically for you if you're a believer. He came to save you, take your sins upon himself, die on the cross, wash away your sins. I, to me, it's unfathomable sometimes, folks. I know what I was before I knew Jesus Christ. I know what I did before Jesus Christ. And he saved me anyway. And then after, because now I know the truth. It should be lived every single moment, every single day, every single year. And he still saved me. And I I get people in the counseling room and and they look at me and say, "Well, well, why would he do that? I said, because they're in heaven. The angels are in heaven. The angels are are looking, Jesus, you're going to forgive Bill Shannon again? You're going to forgive Bill Shannon again? That's what he does. That's what he wants to do. And and that's what you have to see, folks. He is in the business of doing that. And if you don't know him, come to him today. Carl's in the back. I'm here. Any of the men that are here who know him, speak to them. That's the, the best thing that you'll get out of this series on the Roman Catholics. Um, before I came up here, I was speaking to, I call him the historian, uh, Nathan Busnitz, uh, because that's what he loves. Is he loves history. So we were talking about it. And so I started asking some questions. So when did you start coming to Grace Church? Well, it was right after my mom got out of the hospital. So he's been here since the beginning of his life. Folks, you don't have to be here for all that time. You could have just, some folks said they came out this is their first time. Doesn't matter. Make sure that you know Christ. Okay, the next session, section, uh, I'm sorry, is the sacraments. I'm sorry, the saints, the saints. Yeah, okay, well, I have saints. We're doing saints. It must be a technical error. <laughs> I, you can always blame it on the tech guys, you know? <laughs> yeah, 
You know, you're talking about India, and I love India, George, and they have Roman Catholic churches there. They have Jewish synagogues there. Uh, They have Hindu temples, of course, and I've gone to many of those temples. And you know the most disheartening thing is when you go to one of those temples or one in Madras, and I see all of the stuff on the wall, it reminds me of a Roman Catholic church. It, It gives me that idea. Matter of fact, you could even see pictures of Jesus sometimes, but that's what you have in those temples. Um, Madras is down by uh, Mount uh, Thomas, and that's where they said Thomas, the apostle, had gone. But Roman Catholic, we're going to look at saints and Mary. And, they, and I think this is significant, okay, because the Roman Catholic Church doesn't think that they worship something else. They think they're worshiping Jesus Christ, but they're not. They're worshiping these saints. They may call it, what, what do they call it? Veneration. That's what they call it. We, uh, we had gone on a trip to um, Greece and Turkey and Crete uh, years ago. We went uh, to Philippi. I don't know if you remember that day we went to Philippi. And this lady was taking us around and took us to this picture of this woman who was Lydia, supposedly, and, and they were there and they're praying and bowing down. I said, that's, that's worship. She said, oh, no, no, that's just veneration. No, it's not. So as we start this, uh, and again, I don't think I'm going to get through the whole thing, <laughs> um, but um, I just want to bring your attention. You know what, maybe even this. Any questions about the sacraments? Yeah, please, Matthew. They have no basis for it, but if you do it once, it has to be all the time. He's asking, why do they call at the Mass the body and blood of Christ every single time? And, and it's not like um, having... Um, it's the theology of why it has to be repeated. Repeated because it holds them in. You see, as a Roman Catholic, you have to go to Mass every Sunday. You folks have it easy. <laughs> you know... I was once up in, in the Northwest, and uh, it was a beautiful day. And uh, the pastor who was there said, there's only half the people that they normally get. And I said, why? And he said, well, this is sunny Sunday. And they go out, and they go out on the lake. The Protestants can make that choice whether they do it or not, and they don't feel bad about it. You know, it's a time to be with my family. It's a time to do this. But the Roman Catholics, you have to go every single Sunday uh, in order. And if you don't, then you are, you have uh, committed a sin. Is there any sort of scriptural basis that you twist to make that point, or it's just the councils that... It's just coming up with it in the 1500s. Yeah. It's sort of invented... And that's, that's unfortunate for the Roman Catholics, inventing these things. and that They don't even know it, the Roman Catholics. They really, really don't. And that's why for us to beat up on them is wrong because you're, it's like beating up on a dummy. Get that the right way. Okay? 
They, they just can't answer you because they have no answer to it. And, and, and I love them, I, but I just think they, they need to come to Christ. We used to have a nun in here. I don't know if you know that, in Faith Builders. Yeah, we used to have a nun in here. She used to come to our house, she and her husband. Uh, <laughs> and, and we'd have lunch, and I'd, I'd just ask her certain things about being a nun in a nunnery. Oh, my goodness. She said that drove her nuts. That's why she had to get out of it. I mean, she was on all kinds of uh, psycho drugs to try to, to, because it's just completely, you do what they say and you don't question what they say. And so she uh, left that. Mary, uh, let, let's wait for the uh, mic. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get to Saints and, yeah. The Roman Catholic would say because they received the rite of baptism, they had um, the last rites, all of that, they would say that they're in, in heaven, okay? Um, for us, okay, we can't find a scripture that's going to absolutely prove that every single child is going to be in heaven. I have had debates with friends. As a matter of fact, I used to believe something else than I do right now, okay? And, and, I, and I changed because, you know, more thought process. As, as a pastor to go to somebody and not tell them that their child is okay, I think it's wrong. You have to tell them that they're, they're safe. There's a book actually out, Safe in the Arms of God. I don't know who wrote it, but uh, um, I didn't, when I first came out, I didn't agree with it. And, and I, you know, we talked about it and we debated it and all that kind of stuff. Because to use the passage with David is just not quite fit there for my heart and actually the scriptures. So we talked about it. And, um, um, but after a while, how can you tell them no? God is merciful. God is glorious. God is gracious. And he's going to prove it even there. He's going to prove it even there. Uh, to, to beyond a doubt, he's going to prove it there. We have, I think, 60 million babies who have been aborted in the United States of America at this point. Maybe more. I've got to believe that God has a place for them, and he's taking care of them. I mean, that's, that's murder. And they, they couldn't even think yet. Couldn't even start to think. So that's the way I think of it. I got some friends who say, well, if their parents were believers, and I said, well, how many believers are getting an abortion? Oh, come on, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, in the back, we got a mic back there. Hey, Pastor Shannon. Um, so going back to James chapter 5, verse 14, uh, in the Catholic Bible, it says, Is anyone among you sick? They should call for the priests of the church, and he will pray over them and anoint them sick with oil in the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in our Protestant Bible, obviously, it's uh, you know, calling the elders. 
yeah, it's doulos. It's a, it's an elder. It's of a, of a um, uh, it, the the Greek word there is for elder, not priest. Okay. So they changed the word. And then would that also um, be in context because uh, the apostles had apostolic gifts? So, you know, elders at that time. I mean, how what is what, how does it fit today in, in today today's church with us with anointing oil and elders? And, well, the, an elder can go to the hospital and bring oil with him if he wants. I would have him, you know, fine, you want to do that, you believe that. I, I want to go there and I want to pray for them. That's what I think is the most important thing, is to pray for them. Now, in some cases, and by the way, this actually message is being preached in another fellowship group this morning because I spoke to the pastor who's doing it. So uh, you may want to go online and, and listen to him. But uh, I believe, okay, that... Um, it's basically an encouragement to that person. And some folks even say that it's sick with sin. And that's why you're praying for them. So I, you know, um, I leave that open. It's one of those passages that is debated and, and uh, uh, forever. And so I'll leave it there. And I haven't touched that passage in a long time. So you guys are catching me a little without all my info. Yes. Um, you mentioned in the very beginning that some Catholics, that they don't really even know what they believe. Is it possible that someone can attend a Catholic church all their life, not really know a lot of these discrepancies, all these things that are being taught that are against the Bible, not even really know, and, and somehow be saved and really not even know it? In other words, they don't use the, vernac- they don't use the term saved, mm-hmm. but let's just say, like you said, they don't know what... what they don't even know that some of this stuff's being taught in here. Or, you know, and, and is it possible for someone to attend a Catholic church their whole life and somehow end up giving their life to the Lord, to, to the true Lord, mm-hmm. um, and be saved? Is that something that you think happens? No. I think it's impossible. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. That's a declaration saying, He's my master. I will do anything and everything that he says. And he's my Lord. That's all, all a Catholic who just is there is not thinking in those terms. He's going to go out and get drunk at least once or twice. You know, he's going to go out and do some other things, uh, you know, uh, steal money, whatever it is. But he's going to feel okay because he went to confession. Uh, that's, that's not you. You have... You confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But there has to be a confession. And that confession is to God. So you have to believe. Uh, you can't just get through life. I mean, that would be great for some people. Uh, I don't know anything. You know, and that, that brings up you know, the people in the darkest of uh, Antarctica. You know, and they haven't heard the gospel yet. God brings them the um, creation, okay, and it gives them a conscience to let them know. There are two things, elements that he uses to bring them to, you know what, there is a God. Now you've got to go seek for him. When you start seeking for him, you will find him. Oh, it's good to see you here, John.
First Corinthians in my devotional time, mm -hmm. and I read a passage that I wanted to bring up because we're on this topic. So just first and foremost, I know that there's a lot of error in Catholicism. Mm -hmm. We also have some people who are Eastern Orthodox in our family, so we've had discussions about you know doctrine and things like that. So our beliefs are not going to change, you know, but God wills. You know, mm -hmm. we're believing that people can be saved out of the errors of Roman Catholicism. So what I was reading caused me to think, like, how do I answer that? Not that I have any trouble believing what we believe, but mm -hmm. if somebody were to bring this to me, I'm not sure how I would answer it. So if I could read the passage really quick. And then First Corinthians, you said? Yes. First Corinthians 15, 29. So I'll start in 28 for context and then read 29. So and when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And then here's 15, 29. Otherwise, what will those do... This is 1 Corinthians? Oh, First Corinthians 15, okay, 29, okay. This is what the Mormons use. Not, not even Eastern Orthodox, but Mormons would use that as getting baptized. I mean, some people get baptized over and over and over again, and they get baptized for some dead person. And it doesn't even have to be a dead person who followed Mormonism, but it's just some name that they got from somebody in the church, and that's what they do. Do you really think that works? No. Of course not. Of course not. Um, so it, it's not something that I would see as, um, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now we make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Here's the gospel. Here's the truth, which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. He gives the gospel. And he starts that out. For I delivered you, I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So he's giving the gospel there. This is something that's ancillary for some other questions that were going on at that point of which I'd have to study the passage to find out exactly what it is. And I haven't, I've never preached through that passage. So um, I don't see... Dr. Nah, Zuber here, but anyway, that's, that's, I, I could look that up this week if I get a chance, and I'll try to get back to you. Yeah, MacArthur probably has it somewhere in his Bible. Anyway. Yes, sir, William. What, what we need to get you a, a mic, William? Okay, here we go. Um, you know, if I were to go to a Catholic church, I'm certain I wouldn't hear the preaching of no. the word. And so, uh, are you going to discuss how, like, the Catholic Church 
Uh, they don't emphasize preaching. They have, what do they call it? Do you remember? A homily. A homily. A homily is generally about 10 minutes long. If a priest goes longer than that, the snoring starts. So um, it's, it's not a very engaging, but you can, I'm sorry, I'm, to be serious, they can sometimes open up to the Gospel of John and start reading that and then start talking about it. They could possibly hear the Gospel, um, but I don't ever remember hearing it myself. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I was not really listening to the priest. I was picking on the girls. <clears throat> All right, anyone else? Question? Right here. Since you touched on marriage, uh, my question is if biblical marriage and legal marriage are the same, because biblical marriage is defined as a pact between man, God, and woman mm-hmm. that can be broken. Uh, so it's a long, lifelong commitment. The legal marriage is defined by the government as a contract between two persons and it could be broken at any time. Mm-hmm. Also, the conditions that uh, the legal marriage has is any can, like the, man, uh, the woman can be the head of the household as well. Mm-hmm. The biblical marriage says that the man has to be the head of the household. Also, if um, the woman leaves the marriage for any reason, she could get she could take the house, she could take the children, and she also takes alimony. And I don't see any of that in the Bible. Um, so I was wondering if you could get through that. Sure. There's a lot there to unpack. Do we have another hour? Can we, <laughs> can we tell uh, joint heirs they can't come in? Um, that's that's a, a long answer. By the way, they're not the same. They're not the same. Uh, a biblical marriage is between a husband and a wife. That biblical marriage can happen with the justice of the peace in the sense that they're both believers and they're both committed. But it's only between a man and a woman. You can't have two women. You can't have two men. That's, that's absolutely wrong. Okay, You can't have trends and dis and all of that kind of stuff. That's wrong. I'll go to jail. I don't care. That's not the way God made it. When he created man, he said he was needed a helper, okay? And the only way to do that, the helper had to come along. And, and that's what a marriage is. Biblical marriage is where you're really truly committed to one another. Um, a legal marriage is something totally different. When you said you, you brought up 1 Corinthians, actually 7.15, where it says that if they are leaving... Uh, They'd ha- an unbeliever is the one who would leave because a Christian wouldn't leave. Christian doesn't leave a marriage. A Christian tries to work it out. Do you know marriage is hard? No. Does anybody not know that? It's hard. But you know one thing I do know? God gave the marriage couple the exact partner, the exact spouse that they need to have. You know why I know that? Because he's perfect and he makes no mistakes. So every marriage is there for a purpose. And he's going to grow that person, even through the difficulties, even through the rainy days. He's going to grow them to be the people of God that they ought to be in that marriage. And yes, 
It may be painful and it may be hurtful and it may be I'm not getting my way because I hear some of that sometimes. <laughs> oh my. And by the way, that's not just male and it's not just female. It's both of them. It's, they, they both do it. And sometimes even in the same marriage. You know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I hope that gives you a little bit of indication. It's only the, the, the reason that you brought up there is the unbeliever leaving. Yes, you can end that marriage. You have Grace Church, the elders of Grace Church have two reasons. That is one of them. The other one is somebody committing adultery. Now, I've had multiple where somebody's committed adultery and the marriage is still together. I can tell you story after story. I, I cry through those things. God kept them together, whether it was the male or the female, and they sought forgiveness, they got forgiveness, and now they're living forgiveness. Just tell you one quick story. If you're in my counseling class, you've always hear this. I had this couple where she leaves. She goes out with somebody. She's a member of Grace Church, and she just leaves her husband and, and goes out with some guy and starts living with him. And he comes to my door. My door was right in the chapel. He's knocking on it. Bill, I want my wife back. I said, well, I mean, just give me some information. Didn't have it right away. Give me information. He comes every single day. Let's call him Hosea. Hosea comes back, and Hosea asks again and again and again. Three or four weeks later when he stops coming, he says, uh, she calls me. She says, will my husband take me back? I said, well, at last call, he would take you back. Let me find out. He said, yes. Get them both in my office. And I'm, I'm, oh, I just didn't need to do a little counseling here. That's all I need to do. We can put them back together. I actually called up the man that she lived with. I gave him the gospel because that's a gospel opportunity. All right? But she says, well, 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 before we get started, I'm pregnant with the other man's baby. And I go, that's a nuclear attack. This is over. And I sit there and I look at Jose and I say, Jose, what do you want to do? I want my wife back. Donna and I ran into her, I don't know, two years ago. It happened 25 years ago. And the son that they had looked more like his non-biological father than his biological mother. How does that happen? It's only by the grace of God. I don't know that anybody else knows it. But that's what God does. He can cover our sin. Proverbs 28, 13. What you cover, God will uncover. And what you uncover, God covers. He's a gracious God, folks. He's a great God. And he does that over and over and over again. You have a tough marriage? Okay, you're joining the club. Okay? You got to work through it. You got to have the, the tools, though, to be able to work through that. So you can still get married. All right. <laughs> Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace of this day. Oh, Lord, just thinking back on the 55 years and all that we can celebrate. Lord, you have been very, very faithful to this church. And we thank you in your name. Amen.